This podcast may contain content that is graphic and disturbing in nature. Listener discretion is advised. On an April evening in 2013, a young woman working alone in an Exxon Mart was just about to close after her night shift when she suddenly vanished into thin air. Did she leave of her own will, or did something much more sinister happen to her? This is episode 58, The Jessica Karinga Story. Good morning, Megan. That's right. We're recording today in the morning, which is a new one for me because I usually don't get up until what? Yeah. Afternoon? Do you feel or... okay? No, you know, I don't love to record in the morning, but I'm doing it now. I feel great. We have a lot going on also. We had to, you know, adjust our schedule. We're both, just so people know, we're both moving. You just moved. You're living with Alan's mother I'm right living now. with Alan's mother. Bless her heart. <laughs> <laughs> until we move into our next home, which we're going to be closing on in a few weeks. And we just sold our place. Congratulations. So thank you. We're packing up and kind of moving a little bit further out to country land, which yes. we're so excited about. Or somewhere, you know, with a lake, a backyard. And Megan, I feel like your move will look like mine. Lots of green chef boxes. Oh my gosh, completely. <laughs> we yes. packed in. You have to start saving them because we've been moving slowly for a couple of months. I've I saved all my Green Chef boxes and you could see what a big supporter I am as I carry all my Green Chef boxes. <laughs> I mean, it's it's good advertising too. But yeah, no, we have to start packing up soon. We've got a lot going on, but we are excited to be back recording and we're looking forward to bringing you today's episode Jessica Haringa. Megan, before we get to your episode, do we have any supporters to thank? Of course we do. We are very fortunate. Today, we would like to thank Karen from Western Australia. Can we come visit you? Isn't it great? I mean, we have, you know, we're lucky. We're getting a lot of international supporters. And Karen, just so you know, and other Australian listeners, I recently recorded an episode on Myra Hindley with the Australian podcast True Crime Conversations. And that should be airing I think maybe this week or next week. And it was really exciting to work with someone from Australia. It was a fun experience. And I hope we can do it more. We also have Carol from Scotland. Carol, thank you so much. I mean, I love this international support. Thank you. Can we do a meetup somewhere with all our international friends? I think we should. And I think we might. How are you going to fly to somewhere? (laughs) You have to be knocked out for it, actually. (laughs) Um, Thank you so much, Carol. It's so great to get support from Scotland. We have to consider a Scottish case now. Yes. Oh, we do. And don't we also have a birthday shout out? Yes. Okay. We have JR. His wife, Caitlin, got him Patreon for his birthday. Which was on September 11th. Happy belated birthday, JR. Happy belated birthday. And they listen to our podcast together um, before they go to bed. Oh, Isn't that really cute? That's so nice. I know. I feel very fortunate. Thank you so much to the supporters and listeners. Thank you so much for all your support. Our patrons are now receiving their bonus episode per month, which is exciting. We released one last week. We already recorded our October episode, but... For people who are in the $10 plus tier, we're going to let you guys decide who we cover for the November Patreon episode. So stay tuned. Watch for our messages. We'll be sending some info for how you can help decide the November case. And we're looking forward to seeing who you choose. Megan, our patron should also stay tuned for our next AMA, which I will be announcing soon. I know. Last time was fun because we did the crime trivia. I loved that one. Anyway, okay. 
I'm really eager to get into this case today that was brought to us by a listener who was really impacted by Jessica's story and her family's dedication to finding her. So I hope this episode does this case justice. Our thoughts go out to the Haringa family and anyone who knew Jessica. Jessica was born to Shelley Haringa and Pete Jenkins in Michigan, where she was raised along with her sister, Samantha, with whom she was very close. I don't know if her parents were married, but at some point, Pete Jenkins, Jessica's father, married another woman who then became Jessica's stepmother. And I know that Jessica lived with them for some time in her teenage years as well. Jessica liked the beach and she spent a lot of time with her friends and family. She excelled in high school and aspired to go to college to become an accountant. At the time of the events that we're going to discuss, Jessica was 25 years old and she had a three-year-old son named Zevin to whom she was very devoted. I'm not, I've never Zevin? heard. Yeah, I've never heard this name before. Have you? No, it's very unique. I think so too. My friend's daughter was named Seven, like the number. Oh, yeah. I thought that was unique too. Friends basically said that Seven was her whole world, and she did everything for him. Even on a lower income, she was able to provide him that, with the type of quality time that she valued, and that was very obvious to all of the people around her. Jessica was engaged to Dakota Quail Dyer. Zevin's father, but they were having some problems. And after Jessica's mother and her sister moved away, Jessica was left reportedly feeling, you know, pretty lonely and without her support network. It sounded like it was a very difficult time for Jessica, but she was still maintaining a positive attitude from the descriptions I read. And even though she wasn't working at her dream job, she did enjoy working as a cashier in a local Exxon gas station convenience store because she was extremely friendly. And she liked the customers, many of whom became her friends. She liked customer service. She was just really a people person. And that's how most people describe her as being happy and very friendly. On April 26, 2013, Jessica was working the night shift at the Exxon convenience store. Her last recorded sale was at 10.55 p.m. when she sold a lighter to a female customer she knew. One of her other regular customers by the name of Craig Harpster came by for gas right before the store closed. The timing is important here, so follow along. This was at 11.07. Craig was a regular in a small town. I think he worked also really nearby, so it was like routine of him to just come by and get his gas. And he said that as soon as he pulled in, Jessica would turn on the pump for him. You know, you have to go in and Mm -hmm. sometimes request that. So he waited at the pump for, you know, a minute or two, but Jessica didn't do anything. And so he went in to see what the issue was. The reason why also is because he said Jessica was the type of person who was always on top of things immediately. When he walked into the convenience store, Mr. Harpster said he got a very bad feeling immediately. As soon as he opened the door and started calling out for Jessica, he called the police and said something was wrong. He said that what he saw in the store was that Jessica's purse was sitting on the counter and the cash drawer was wide open. And he said, look, this is not like Mm -hmm. Jessica. She would never, ever leave these items out as most people I think would not. The police came, they came to the scene and they realized that Jessica's personal stuff and her car were both still at the store. First thing they did, You know, after taking a look around and seeing, yeah, things look out of place here and we know it, they called Dakota. He was at home with their three-year-old son, but he said he had no idea where Jessica was. So just keep that in mind for later. Outside the gas station, they were doing a little investigation and they found some dried blood out back 
on the ground, but they didn't know whose blood it was. And it wasn't like a tremendous amount. You know, by Mm -hmm. when we look at blood scenes, you can tell if foul play happened and how bad it was judging on the amount. So it wasn't enough to be able to draw any conclusions at that point. Unfortunately, the gas station had no security cameras. Isn't that strange? Yes. Were they broken or they just didn't have any? They didn't have any. And Amy, this is going to become an issue for us to discuss. And there's going to be some thoughts about whether or not stations like this or other, you know, late night convenient marts should be mandated to have surveillance cameras. The manager of the gas station said that she saw a silver minivan behind the building that night as well, around the time when Jessica disappeared. So she wasn't working, but ironically, she and her husband were Out that night, I guess they had been out on a date and they were on their motorcycle driving past the gas station at that exact time. They went around back too because she said it was odd the way the minivan pulled in the back. Like something was just Mm -hmm. not, it was not the right placement. I think it was like where delivery should have happened or something. So they went around and they saw the driver, but not the license plate or Jessica. But when the police came, they brought dogs into the scene, you know, the scent dogs. And the scent they detected ended right at the exact spot the manager and her husband saw the minivan. They didn't approach. They just kind of drove past, saw someone sitting in the car and kept going. They didn't think because it sounds like they thought something was going on, but they didn't speak to the man or get a good they look at him. They saw him, but he drove away also. Oh, he drove away. I'm sorry. Okay. But they did get a look at him mm-hmm. and they did get a look at the minivan and they okay. were able to describe it. Okay. After the scent dogs were brought in and after they realized that, yes, this is the spot, you know, they began to suspect that somebody had abducted Jessica or at the very least that there was some type of foul play involved here now. Dakota, let's come back to Dakota because who's the first person they usually go to? Whoever's closest to the victim. Right. So the spouse or the boyfriend, he was interviewed, of course, but he was home, as I said, watching their son. And he had no car because Jessica had their shared vehicle. As I said before, they were on kind of a low income. As I understood it, Dakota wasn't working at the time. He was providing the childcare primary and Jessica was working. So they only had one vehicle and Jessica had it that night. How far did they live from the station? Not that far, though. That's a great point. And it was, you know, maybe a mile and a half or two miles, something. So, you know, close enough that is a good question and the three-year-old i'm assuming was allegedly sleeping they didn't he didn't really he or she didn't have much to say Yes, exactly. Phone records also confirmed that Dakota was home that evening because cell phone records. He was on his phone. Oh, okay. It was I was going to say he could have left his phone home, but he was actually on it. It looked like he was actually on the okay. phone. Yes. So now this also gets, we've heard this before, this gets complicated with cell phones because if it's that close also, there could be shared towers. Mm-hmm. But it looked like it was pinging closest to the home. What happened later was that at first the police were kind of like, yeah, it doesn't look like this guy's involved. But then Jessica's diary painted a very rocky relationship with a controlling fiance. So police kept him on the radar, which they always do. And what became more suspicious was that Dakota was asked early on to turn over those diaries. I think it was even Jessica's family, someone from Jessica's family who asked him. And the police said that he didn't do it earlier on. And when they asked him, they said that he was very reluctant. He didn't want to give those diaries over, but he did eventually. He did eventually cooperate. After Jessica vanished, her family quickly mobilized a command center in the area with search crews They did a lot of press, and there was a ton of support from the community immediately. Meanwhile, Sue Follette, the gas station manager who was on the motorcycle, met with a sketch artist and came up with a sketch. But it seemed pretty generic because it was a short glimpse 
at night. And so at first glance, it didn't look like someone immediately identifiable. And Amy, I'm sure you could talk about how that's common, right? That someone can't really make a great identification, I would say, at night within a short period of time, right? Yeah. I mean, that would be tricky, obviously, if there was a lineup or something. But I think it's even harder with a composite sketch when you have such specific features that you're trying to recall. I thought about it myself. I've thought about this before whenever I've reviewed sketches, how hard it would be. Even if I saw someone and I thought I got a good look at them, could I really identify the structure of their nasal bridge or how far apart their eyes were? I mean, I think it sounds very challenging. Mm -hmm. However, the sketch was released. And they were also looking for the silver minivan. And after canvassing the main roads for cameras, because the gas station didn't have one and neither did the place directly across the street, the police eventually found surveillance tapes from a local coin shop that pointed at the road, the road that the van would have pulled out, and they saw in the minivan at 11.05 that Sue Follett had seen. And what it, time did, I'm sorry, what time did she see? Did she recall what time she drove it, past? Yeah, it was at that time. Okay. Because she described this timeline, mm-hmm. like she was, the police were giving her a timeline, like the last customer was at 10.55 and then someone was 11.07. Oh, was, she was oh, like, that's a very small timeline. I know, which is something that is a little disturbing because she saw that minivan, or they saw it on surveillance at 11.05. Wow. And it was a Chrysler town and country silver minivan, a 2003 to 2006 model. She saw it pull away at 11.05 and Craig Harpster pulled in at 11.07. So this abduction happened in like a five minute window. 10.55 to 11.05. That's 10 minutes. It's, I mean, that's a short amount of time we're looking at here. The problem was, I mean, this was a great tip and they were pretty excited about it, but there were 15,000 vehicle matches in just the Michigan DMV system. So it was kind of like a needle in a haystack. And it could have been out of state. That's just, yes. that's assuming it was Michigan. Absolutely. It was apparently the most popular minivan at the time. Who knew? I know. I wouldn't have known that either. I didn't really even know minivans were that popular at any point, to be honest. Okay. So 12 days after Jessica's disappearance, the police were able to confirm that the blood outside the gas station was Jessica's. Mm -hmm. So the evidence is adding up and yeah, things are not looking good, unfortunately. The police, meanwhile, were also compiling a list of suspects. Men who knew Jessica and with whom she might have been friendly and who would sometimes visit her at the gas station. So police were taking a hard look at them. Remember, she was extremely friendly. Dakota said that also their relationship was on the rocks. When he was asked what was wrong, he said that there were fidelity issues. Mm -hmm. So I cannot be certain about any side or what happened, but she definitely had friendships with people. So police have to look at all male friendships. I'm assuming they looked closely at the man who called the police as well. They did look at him, yeah. He was he was pretty credible, yeah. though. They were able to discount him pretty mm-hmm. quickly. Remember, he was coming he was from coming work, from, yeah. too. Um, one of the suspects admitted that he saw Jessica that night at the gas station. He said they were romantically involved, but that's not confirmed, just so we know, by anyone else. And her family believed that Jess was just being her overly friendly self. However, the suspect, Jess Ammerman, and his wife were both interviewed and given polygraph tests. The results were never made known to the public, and the two remained on police radar for some time. Jess Ammerman had been in the store visiting around 9 o'clock. But it looked like he wasn't in there any later than that. And I believe his wife was at home. But Jess Ammerman said that he and Jessica were involved. And so, you know, the police were thinking that if something went wrong with them, if she rebuffed him... Or if his wife was angry because his wife found out that they could be suspects. And that seems possible or logical given what they knew. Jessica was also friends with someone named Rob Follett. And he visited Jessica that evening, but he was also reported being somewhat rebuffed by her. I think he had also kind of made an advance towards her and 
She was working on her relationship and not, I don't think, interested in pursuing it any further. But his whereabouts were also later verified by cell phone technology. And it looked like he wasn't near the station when Jessica disappeared. There were a few other minor suspects throughout the years, including a sex offender who was local. But no real ties to the crime happened until April of 2016. So that's three years later. And this is the first break in the case we get. In April of 2016, a 16-year-old girl named Madison Nygaard was walking home from a party during the evening, and she had somehow gotten lost and had been walking around in the dark for quite some time when a man pulled up in a minivan next to her and offered to help her. This is complicated. She got in his van with him. She did because she was lost alone. I don't know if she had consumed anything, but she needed a cell phone to call for help. And so, I, you know, when you're weighing the options, how no, public service announcement, do not do that. I do agree. Uh, but she's a 16 year old girl who's yeah. wandering in the dark for hours and mm -hmm. maybe was more scared to yeah. be out alone. Mm -hmm. She got in the, the car. She thought that he would, you know, use his cell phone to call her for help. But unfortunately, when she got in, the man started driving driving fast, speeding away, and he put a gun on her. But in an attempt of total bravery, she jumped from the moving van and ran, and this act saved her life. Good for her. She survived. She then gave the police a description of the van and an approximate location where this happened, and they were able to find the van on surveillance. Right. And trace it to a man named Jeffrey Willis. And I'm assuming that is the same make and model of the van they were looking for. That is correct. Okay. Madison Nygaard later positively identified Jeffrey Willis from a photo lineup as well, and the police arrested him in May 2016. But remember, this arrest right now is for an attempted abduction, mm -hmm. you know, brandishing a weapon as well. That's the only arrest. But once they were able to make the arrest, then they were able to get the warrant to search his house. Were they, do you think they were starting to connect things or thinking he was potentially a suspect? I don't think so. No, no. Mm -hmm. I, I'm, not, I'm not sure, yeah. but I don't think so. I think right now they were just going with, you know, this guy's obviously some type of predator mm -hmm. and let's see what we find. So a search of Jeffrey Willis's home and van revealed several damning items connected to other crimes. He had a computer folder with the title VIX, V-I-C-S, like victims. And in his folder, he had articles related to Jessica Haringa, but also a woman named Rebecca Bletch. Have you ever heard of her? I have not. I hadn't heard her name before either, and I didn't recognize her when I, when I looked her up. But this woman, Rebecca Bletch, was murdered in 2014, and her case was unsolved. And this was one of the labels also in his computer. The computer also revealed thousands of saved videos depicting the abduction, rape, and torture of women. They also found in his van a gun that was not registered to Willis, handcuffs, and a toolbox with all types of sex toys and other devices, Ugh. as well as syringes and gloves and other forms of restraints. Someone we don't want on the street. No, I mean, they were Ugh. like, you know, when, when you open yeah. this, this is a kit for you yeah. know, a serial predator, mm -hmm. a serial sex offender, a serial murderer. This, this spoke volumes. But even though you could argue, yeah, so I have sex toys and handcuffs because maybe my wife and I, he wasn't married at the time, but had been married earlier. You, you could make an argument mm -hmm. for that. But the gun would prove to be very fruitful. And this would lead to a big break in the other case I just referenced, the murder of Rebecca Bletch. Was she shot? She was, in mm -hmm. fact. 
And in June of 2014, 36-year-old wife and mother Rebecca Bletch was found on the side of a road in Dalton Township, which is not far at all from Muskegon, Michigan. And that's where Jessica Haringa went missing. And Rebecca Bletch had been shot to death. Luckily, the investigators were able to retrieve some of the shell casings from the firearm used, and the casings matched the gun found in Jeffrey Willis's van. Good. Which is how they made the connection. Willis would later on be tried and convicted of the murder of Rebecca. The police also had, they had the gun, but they also had, very luckily, DNA matching Rebecca Bletch on items belonging to Willis. So this was a solid case. Strong, solid, good police work. This originated from the identification from Madison Mm -hmm. Nygaard, Lucky, every, these pieces all came Mm -hmm. together. And after that, Jeffrey Willis would be tried for the murder of Jessica Haringa. But this would be a much harder case because there was no DNA. So the connection they made, other than the car, I'm assuming there were other connections? Well, what they had was the identification by Madison Nygaard. They had the same vehicle, and they had the documents on his computer with Jessica's victim. He he had labeled a file with her initials and the date of her disappearance. Oh, the trial for Jessica's abduction and murder was held in May of 2018 and lasted just under a week. Now, Amy, I know what you're going to be thinking. What are you going to ask me? How do we know that Jessica was murdered? I thought we just knew she was missing. This is a good question. The answer is that there was a second suspect involved. It turns out that Jeffrey Willis had a cousin by the name of Kevin Bloom. Kevin Bloom wound up speaking to the police about this case. They made some ties or connections, putting the two near each other with cell phone technology. And Kevin Bloom admitted to police during an interrogation that he saw Jessica dead and helped Willis dispose of her body. This was a bombshell. (laughs) However, he later recanted his statement. Did he tell them where the body should be found, though? No, he didn't. So they could charge someone with murder just on the testimony of someone saying, I saw her dead? We know that cases are tried without bodies. Yeah, I know. I mean, this is it's not, just not that easy. It's not that easy, but they've got the blood. She's gone. They, they have the other victim. They have the other victims. Yeah. I think that I see why they tried. I mean, I'm glad they did, but it I is just I don't know that without his statement, they found his statement very credible at first. Mm-hmm. I mean, he described what she looked like. Gotcha. Like, you know, it was credible at first. And what happened with him was even though he recanted, he was convicted of being an accessory after the fact. So a jury found this confession pretty credible. They were at like certain places at certain times together. Just, you know, we get to Willis's trial. I'll give you some of the evidence that helped convict him. I was going to say, when he recanted, I'm assuming that takes away immunity. I don't think he was going to have immunity per se. I think he might have had a deal in place. Mm -hmm. He only got like a year and a half in prison Mm -hmm. and five years of probation with a GPS requirement for some of that time. Okay. You know, it's interesting or not interesting, but scary. He was a correctional officer prior to his arrest. Although with that admission, it helped to establish Jessica's death, which I think everyone knew at this point. Mm -hmm. And he was not called to testify at trial because at the Rebecca Bletch trial, he invoked his Fifth Amendment right to remain silent. Mm -hmm. So it was likely that he was going to do the same thing here. All right, let's get back then. You have the second suspect. He's convicted. It's for accessory after the fact. They don't think he was involved in the abduction or anything that happened to her. Let me talk about the evidence that came out at Jeffrey Willis's trial. We had a lot of the same information I've already given you. Jessica's final customer testified that she saw a suspicious man hanging around the store. 
I mean, that's not the strongest Mm -hmm. piece. We had the couple on the motorcycle, and they testified that they saw Willis in his silver minivan the night Jessica disappeared in the exact time frame. And Sue Follette, who was that manager, was the one who helped the sketch artist. And when you see the sketch, you'll actually find now it does look like him. It looks like Jeffrey Willis especially the nose. This was really interesting because what's different about this is my perspective changed. I looked at the sketch and went, this is so generic. Like this is average. Then when I saw who they convicted and put the sketch next to him, it looks to me pretty much just like him and especially very narrow, very Mm -hmm. thin nose. So I thought the sketch was a good likeness. Did they also have her view a lineup with him in it? I'm not sure if they did that, but remember Madison Nygaard yeah. viewed the lineup and positively identified him as well. Yeah. So even though I know eyewitness identifications are hard, you have a sketch that looks just like yeah. him. You have got mm-hmm. a suspect who- Sounds like I, there's a lot of evidence, yeah. You know, it's these cases are not, you don't have the forensics here, but mm-hmm. there's a good circumstantial case and that's how most cases are, are made. They didn't find Jessica's DNA in his van the way they found the other victims. They did not find any DNA. That was also something that they thought was bizarre because I'm going to talk about one or two things they found at the crime scene that they thought might have Jessica's DNA. So they don't have exactly what they need, but they're building a case here. The prosecution presented evidence that they found a cover for a laser sight on a firearm recovered from the scene with Jessica's blood. So, you know, when your firearm has that laser to help Mm -hmm. you target, it was the cover that went on to that. And they found it pretty much near her blood. And they actually thought maybe he hit her. Mm. and knocked her out. Mm-hmm. And that's how he got her. And maybe that fell off. So they, they were hopeful that they would find the DNA on that. But that did not happen, unfortunately. She's got blood there. So he might have hit her with something. But it doesn't mean he hit her with the gun. Or it doesn't mean she didn't walk out voluntarily. But there's definitely something that caused her to bleed out there. This was, you know, a very strong piece of evidence against him nonetheless. And the reason why is because, you know, that gun that Willis had stolen and they recovered, it was missing. That very piece was missing from his gun. Okay. (laughs) His stolen gun. So you've got a laser piece here. Mm -hmm. Um, So they were able to make the connection that way. Willis also did not show up at his job the evening of Jessica's disappearance or in the following few days after that. Right. So you see this is, you're you're shaking your head because I'm saying like, it's not a slam dunk, but they're making a good case here, I I think. I think so. Dakota took the stand and talked about their rocky relationship. He talked about infidelity, control issues, and mistrust. And he also said, unfortunately, that Haringa was had started using drugs recently. He said specifically that she was using heroin and that she had a second phone that she used to purchase drugs. This was unhelpful, or it was helpful to the defense because, of course, they capitalized on that, trying to show a few things. A, she and Dakota had a rocky relationship, mm-hmm. and nobody knows for sure where he was, you know, his alibi wasn't rock solid. Mm-hmm. But B, also that even if Dakota is not involved, she's talking to people who might be selling drugs, who knows what kind of element they are. So mm-hmm. there's this world of other suspects that we don't but know about. But he testified for the prosecution? Dakota testified for the prosecution, yeah, but he yes. ended up helping the defense. I think that part may have slightly helped them. But it wasn't a big deal. I don't think it was that. The jury's going to weigh it, right? Like, hopefully, I'm not blaming her either, Mm -hmm. but they're going to weigh this against all the other evidence that they're establishing. And the prosecution will tell you, yes, maybe she knew other people. Maybe Mm -hmm. she had friends. But Jeffrey Willis is the one who's connected to the scene, to, you know, sexual assault of other women. The defense may have scored some points, but they have to do something. Every defense needs some type of strategy. So Willis's attorney, essentially, as you just said, he was trying to dismantle the prosecution's case because it was mostly circumstantial. 
There was no DNA and, you know, other real like damning forensic evidence. But Willis and his attorney were not successful because the jury found Willis guilty of the murder of Jessica Haranga and sentenced him to life without the possibility of parole. Great. It is great. There's only one problem left here. Okay. You know what that problem is? Yeah, there's no closure for the family because I'm assuming they never found Jessica's body. That's exactly it, Amy. They never found Jessica's body. So he, I'm sorry, so I'm assuming they asked Willis and they're trying to cut a deal, tell us where she is and we'll, or something. Usually they incentivize, maybe not a deal, but they would incentivize. Willis maintains that he had nothing to do with this. Wow. Okay. And, And actually, I watched something briefly. I think he got pretty indignant at his sentencing hearing. I think they'll always hope that at some point he might cooperate, but I don't think so now. And it's very soon still, too. Yeah. So, and the story is not over. Jessica's family really hopes to bring her remains home. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the reasons also I was keen to publicize this case. And one of the reasons our listeners came to us because they said, look, our family's still really trying. Mm -hmm. It's really important for people to bring their loved ones home, to give them a final resting place. Mm -hmm. So what happened after? One of the things that happened was that Jessica's law was proposed in the Michigan legislature, but still hasn't passed. And let me just explain this. It was supported, of course, by Jessica's family. It would require convenience store and gas station owners who were open between the hours of 11 p.m. and 5 a.m. to have operating surveillance cameras for the protection of their employees. I think that's a no-brainer. I think it's a no-brainer, too. Some business owners complained because they said it would be costly. But I'm going to say I support this. Not when weighed against the life of someone. Yeah, I would say, Amy, I don't know about you, but any person who could be yourself, could be someone who has a wife, a daughter, a mother working alone at night, or even a man. I mean, a man is also subject to be attacked. I think anyone whose loved one is in that situation would probably feel the same way. Mm -hmm. This piece of legislation has been in the Michigan legislature for, I think, about seven years and still hasn't passed. Let's get to our conclusions now. First of all, I'll start with theory. Do you have any theories? I don't know enough about Willis to even begin. What I could say, though, we can talk about theories of victimization. We could talk about routine activities theory. In what way, Amy? Explain that, I just realized we never talk about theories of victimization on this, ever, because there are so many. Okay, routine activities theory talks about the presence of... Three things. You have a motivated offender, which clearly there was a motivated offender here, right? You also have lack of a capable guardian. There were no surveillance cameras. No people around. No people. It was dark. It was late. And you have a suitable target. Jessica was a suitable target because she was alone at night. She was a woman, assuming unarmed. So when you have these variables coming together, it's almost like the perfect, you know, the perfect recipe for something like this to happen. That's exactly what it is, Amy, unfortunately. You know, without knowing much about Willis, I think that's a good call to point to victimization and mm-hmm. when, when things happen. And again, good explanation of it. It's not a victim blaming. It's, nope. a, vict- it's a victimization. It's a theory yes. to explain why someone becomes a victim. I always tell my students that. victim I, Victimology, even when we talk about like victim precipitation, how we have passive and active precipitation – Um, So active precipitation is when you actually provoke someone and that results in you being victimized in some way, whereas passive is when the victim unknowingly has a trait or something that excites or provokes. 
the attacker. So that could be like a lot of hate crimes. You would say it was passive precipitation. None of this is victim blaming. It's just helping us try to understand how or why this happened and how we can prevent it from happening again. Exactly. It's the flip side. I mean, we usually explain criminological explanations of offending, right? Mm-hmm. So, and it's for the same purpose. Yep. Victimization is for the same thing as well. Yeah. Thank you. That was well said. And I appreciate that because without knowing a lot about Jeffrey Willis, and I looked, and I didn't find much about him. Let, let me talk mm-hmm. a little bit about what I would say, how I could categorize him and what I did find. First of all, I think even though he did not complete the assault or murder of Madison Nygaard, I think he's probably a serial murderer and a serial rapist. He just got caught a little bit short before his career really advanced. Mm-hmm. And I mean his criminal career. Yeah. He is what we categorize as a lust killer. So unfortunately, if I have to assess him, he rapes and kills and it's for purely for his sexual gratification. Mm-hmm. I have no doubt in my mind, just so you know, that he would have kept going if it had not been for Madison Nygaard's absolute brave escape and Mm -hmm. identification of her assailant. And I think Jessica's case would never have been solved. And I don't know that Rebecca Bletch's case would ever have been solved as well. I was Um, thinking that, that Madison is really the hero here. She is. She really is. And Jessica's family, you know, they 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 really, they they pushed and they they were, you know, they mobilized quickly, which we also talk about. If this was one of our loved ones, we would mobilize quickly too. Mm -hmm. Jeffrey Willis did not have any criminal history of violence, which is not necessarily uncommon for serial offenders. He was married for 13 years, but they separated in 2011. Mm. Now, these attacks also started 2013, 2014. That makes 2016. sense. So right when he has the break. Mm-hmm. The reason I say that is that there are a number of serial offenders who are married and they have periods of desistance because mm-hmm. they are in relationships and they don't have the availability, the time, or the urge is a little bit less during yep. that time. Or our favorite, you could explain it with strain theory. It could be the strain theory, yeah. It could um, be the removal of a positive stimuli, assuming that his wife kind of kept him in line. His wife said that he was verbally abusive, but not physically abusive. She testified briefly at trial that she believed he was seeing someone else during their marriage. Mm -hmm. But other than this, there's not many flags of what was to come. Willis grew up in Fruitport, Michigan, in a middle-class family of five children. He was described by former high school classmates as popular, confident, and someone who did well in school. He had a daughter from a previous relationship and a granddaughter. Mm -hmm. He was mostly described as a likable, nice guy, though there were some reports that he made some crude comments to women that made them feel uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. And friends noted that Jeff had a lot of pornographic material beginning at a young age, more so than what they thought was normal. But other than some- he was employed. Yes. Yep. Always employed. So he wasn't like this loner, drifter. This is one of those cases that bust the myth perceptions that we have of the lone serial killer. It's not true. Mm -hmm. A lot of serial offenders are in relationships. They Mm -hmm. have jobs. He had employee-like recommendations Mm -hmm. describing him as responsible, likable, the best guy. So did BTK. Absolutely. (laughs) Um, So- and what we also know is that most serial killers suffer either um, either both a serious injury in childhood or multiple injuries, actually, mm-hmm. or a traumatic childhood, usually categorized by abuse, neglect, drugs, or other types of violence. And from what I could find, it did not appear that Willis had any of these background factors. So determining his exact behavior, again, would be difficult without his participation, like a clinical interview or study. Mm-hmm. So- For now, I think we just have to classify him as, again, I would say a lust serial killer who was apprehended early in his killing career. And these are the kind that I think worry us the most because there's no signs. There's no signs. There were a couple red flags, but nothing that would... Yeah. Again, I always think of BTK, who was 
such a functioning member of society. He was like head of the Boy Scouts. He worked as a park ranger. He had all these- Involved in the church. Involved, very involved in the church. So you would never suspect it. It's not like the loner, like you said before, it's not the person who looks creepy, who acts a little off. It could be, but it's not always. And you know what else is interesting about BTK? As you probably know, he was unique in that he actually didn't have any history of childhood trauma as well. Mm-hmm. So yeah. yeah it's we, always easier if it's someone like Aileen Warnos, who you can see had a very troubled past. And not that we would expect her to do what she ended up doing, but we can. it helps us understand it a little more. There was the clear indicators of trauma, yeah. abandonment. Mm-hmm. So yes, so he doesn't fit this way. And nope. again, if not for Madison Nygaard, I think that we would be looking at a, a long string of offenses. Yep. So last but not least, did the criminal justice system get it right? Amy? Yeah, he got life without parole, correct? Correct. Yeah, it's as good as they could have gotten it. I'm going to agree with you. The system got it right with the life sentence of Jeffrey Willis, but I don't know that I love the very light sentence that his accomplice got, even though he didn't partake in the crime. Mm -hmm. He was a correctional officer who helped dispose of this young girl's body and then recanted and did not tell where she was. And he got a year did so. Willis ever corroborate that? No, because okay, he Because he claims he didn't do anything. Yeah, no corroboration. Okay. So I don't... And there I, was no evidence of his cousin's involvement whatsoever, other than his own admission, which yes. he then recanted. Yeah. I think there might have been, again, some cell phone evidence that links them together at a certain time okay. that I think he was with him around, but mm-hmm. there's no evidence to support that he was so involved. So what, what would you expect them to give him with such scan evidence? Five years. Okay. I would have liked five years. I could live with that. Yeah. But again, you know what? That wasn't for me to decide and neither for us. And more importantly today and to Jessica's family, again, is that they find Jessica's remains and bring her home. So if anyone knows anything about where Jessica can be found, please contact the Norton Shores Police Department in Muskegon, Michigan. If you want to support Jessica's law, write to Colleen Lamont, who sponsored the bill, to show your support and you can check the House bill 5189 for updates on the Michigan Legislature website. All right, that's it for today's case. Thank you so much, Amy. And I really sincerely hope that Jessica's family will find her someday. Thank you, Megan, for this important case. And thank you to our listener for bringing it to us. Yes. Speaking of listeners, before we go today, we have a question from a listener. Amy, do you want to take this one? I do. And I'm excited to answer this one because it's one of my areas of research that I also teach a lot. The question is, what exactly is recidivism? Oh, that's a good question. Yes. So recidivism, now this could take a whole semester to talk about, but basically recidivism can be measured in several different ways. So recidivism basically means returning to prison after one leaving prison. However, it could be measured as a rearrest, a reconviction, a reincarceration, or a technical slash parole violation. Now, this is the problem because, Megan, we know not everyone who's arrested is then convicted. Uh, Yes. So using that gives us different numbers than if we use conviction, but not everyone who's convicted is incarcerated. So it gets really tricky because which number do we use? So I will give you some statistics that I know of, but keep in mind that there are measurement differences. So according to the National Institute of Justice, almost 44% of people who are released will recidivate at the end of their by the end of their first year out. Now those numbers jump to almost 70% when we look at within three years of release. Now the NIJ is measuring it as arrested for a new crime. So that's not even taking into account technical violations or um, you know parole violations. Um, I mean, and the numbers jump to 77% when you look at within five years. 
So by year nine, the number gets even higher. I've seen some studies that say if you look at within within nine years out, the numbers jump to close to 90%. So this is a big problem. Now, why are these people, you know, why are these individuals ending up back in prison? Well, we have issues with employment, housing, education, there's stigma against individuals who have been incarcerated. And honestly, Megan, I think successful reentry shouldn't be measured so narrowly anyway. I think we should look at success, successful reentry more holistically because we know that just because somebody is arrested or caught up on a technical violation doesn't mean that they're not successfully recidivated. It could just mean that they are being targeted. It could also mean, Amy, I think one of the things I point out to my classes, and I know this is your question, but we just don't set people up well for reintegration because of the stigma, because we impose such harsh requirements on them. Unfortunately, we set them up more for failure. Yeah. In our country, our prisons are not rehabilitative like they are in, say, Norway. Norway has a recidivism rate of closer to 20 percent because they get job training. It's more rehabilitative. We're more focused on retribution in our country. It's all about punishing people, not necessarily making them better than they were when they first went in. I hope we start focusing on the latter and take a, you know, some ex- some good examples, right? I mean, we do some things right, but we need to improve our system at this point. I think that people are really awake on this now, especially in legislation. And I think what I've noticed is actually, I mean, you probably noticed, but a big focus on reentry and at least bringing back some rehabilitative programs and trying to, you know, reduce prison overcrowding at this point. Yeah, like New Jersey Step, which operates um, in prisons in New Jersey offering college education. When you look at the recidivism data for the individuals who took part in that program, it's almost nothing. Yeah, that's a good example, Amy, mm-hmm. and one you teach in. All right, yep. well, thank you so much for answering that. And thank you for the question. We look forward to more. Thanks, everyone, for Women listening. Women in Crime is written and hosted by Megan Sachs and Amy Schlossberg. Our producer and editor is James Varga. Music composition is by Dessert Media. If you enjoy the show, please remember to subscribe and leave a review. You can also support the show while gaining access to ad-free episodes, exclusive AMAs, and other bonus content for a small monthly contribution through Patreon. For more information, visit patreon.com slash womenincrime. Sources for today's episode include amlive.com, woodtv.com, an episode of Disappeared, The Muskegon Chronicle, and testimony featured on Law and Crime.